and welcome to 30 Days of Hope. I am so glad that you've joined us. So I feel like it's been forever since I've actually sat down and had a wonderful interview, but I am so glad to break the break and have this great conversation with my good friend, Anthony Ellis. Now we've known each other for a couple of years. We've been involved in uh, different groups, different Christian college groups as well. Uh, but we go way back before I actually had to dye my hair for fun. <laughs> it was before the wrinkles. Um, but again, so excited to sit down with Anthony Ellis. But let me just give you a little bit of a glimpse of who he is and his life before we really get into some wonderful, wonderful questions. So he lives right outside of New York, right outside of the city. Uh, he's been a part of the NAACP for years and a huge influence, a huge leader within that incredible organization. And right now he's actually a grad school teacher and he's actually doing grad school, studying to be a teacher. And he has such a hope for this next generation. So we're going to be talking about these wonderful issues of racial justice, what we hope will actually come from this next generation, how coronavirus might make us more empathetic, compassionate, aware, and what that will look like for the next generation of children rising up to be leaders and adults. So without further ado, welcome Anthony Ellis. Hi, it's nice to meet you. It's glad to see you. It's been such a long, long time. Yeah. Great that we still are able to uh, connect. So yeah. I'm happy to be here. Oh, thanks. Thank God for Facebook, right? <laughs> All right. Exactly. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Thank God for Facebook is absolutely correct. Exactly. So it must be so incredible right now being a grad mm. student, setting to be a mm. teacher. What, what are some <laughs> of your dreams for the next generation? Uh, yes. Um, one thing about teaching, um, I've actually been teaching for a long time before I went to grad school. Um, I've always have been involved in teaching, um, not as in a teaching role, but more like as a mentorship role. And it basically started when I was in high school. I worked at a community center where I just was like a homework mentor, mentee, where I helped kids with homework. And these were, at that time, I was in 12th grade. Um, mm -hmm. I was helping kids who were like in like third, fourth, fifth grade at an after school program. I did that for several years. Then after that, when I went to college, I didn't really get a chance to do that because at that time I was more into film. But then when I came back, um, a couple years, I worked again at a, this time I worked at a computer lab where I worked with um, kids again. And then after that, I kind of didn't do that for a little while. I didn't come back into it until I started um, they, um, when um, one of the community centers that I worked with had a grant. They started a brand new program called Gateway, which is an after school program for for high schools at the time it started with only one or two high schools then expanded to high schools and middle schools I worked with them I was at that time with my parents we were just doing videography so okay. I did that for around several years and then after that that left and then we came back into it um then after that I kind of started to really get my passion back I came back the last then two years I didn't do much of anything then I went and then I did after school again and this time I was a product first time working with city kids and then at that time, I really started to get my passion. I started getting my footing. And I said, you know what? Since I've been doing this so long, why don't we, and, you know, that was, you know, I, I'm coming to video business, but I was like, I was kind of shifting over the video business, started to kind of quiet down. And I wanted something that would be more sustainable. So I said, you know what? I always like to give back to kids. And I'm very, very good at it. I've been doing homework mentee. So I did that. Then one of the, um, the guidance counselor, social workers that was working there, who also was our guide for um, after school program with the programs and leadership. She said that, you know, I think that to help you out, 
she gave me an opportunity to work part-time as a teacher assistant. So I took that job for two years. I was an assistant for sixth grade. Um, it was hard, mm-hmm. but you know, I think just to see kids have that male black presence in the school, mm-hmm. because a lot of times when you work in a lot of these public schools, especially urban cities, we are usually the ones that are barely there. Mm-hmm. So always just to see students, they kind of will warm up to you. They ain't perfect, but you know, they will warm up to you to kind of have conversations with you because they understand that you're young, you're from there, you, you actually grew up in an area like that. And I understand, I know where they come from. I can bring it, I can kind of be on their level. And yep. one of the things why I want to be a teacher is because I want to help those kids to see those male role models that, you know, it's not just about, because I want kids to be successful. I don't want kids to be in the street. I don't want these kids to be going, have to deal with these cops five times a day. I just want these kids to understand that they can be great. Mm-hmm as well they can be like the next leaders the scientists the next doctors i mean or the next president of the united states so i want to give them that i want to give them that i want to use that as an opportunity to help a lot of my students help out Mm -hmm. especially kids that are don't see those opportunities because Mm -hmm. in the neighborhoods it's just not you know everything that they see around them is just not there yeah yeah well that's that's powerful i will give you credit to me it's almost like you have to have like this wonderful heart to to have that heart for kids and i think it's so exciting because there's there is such a a presence that needs to be there with kids of all ages especially to be an influence to really Mm -hmm. encourage the next generation um and to build their world in such a way of saying here's awareness here's education what are you going to do with it and um, so that's, that's awesome. I applaud all the teachers out there, you know, especially going through COVID crisis right now. I can't even imagine oh, yeah. being it's in very, that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, it's very hard. I mean, just, I actually was on a conversation with my, the, my, um, who used to be the director and I still stay in contact with her. And I asked those questions of how hard is it to still do a program where you're sitting in front of a computer screen because all the activity, <clears throat> excuse me, all the activities that we had had were all physical activities. So like with arts and craft, leadership, gym, those things, those are all physical activities where it kind of had, you have to have that one-on-one experience. Now with that, that in front of a computer, I mean, that has to be hard. And yeah. a lot of times they told me that the attendance was down because, you know, it's not because they didn't want to be part of it. It was just that already their day was overloaded with work mm-hmm. in front of the computer. So they're sitting in front of that computer almost practically the, almost the whole entire day. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, when it comes to after school activities, it's almost impossible to duplicate, replicate that off of a computer screen. I'm pretty much sure that, they, you know, you, you, have to, you have to do it because, you know, there's no other choice. But it's, it's very, very hard without that in-personal interaction. Mm-hmm. That's why mm-hmm. I'm just hoping when it comes that we can find a way to bring it back in person yeah. so that kids have that interaction, knowing that you have to have those social distances, you're all going to have to wear the mask on. But I miss that interpersonal re- that, that interpersonal relationship because mm-hmm. kids need that. I mean, it's good. I understand it's you're in front of a computer screen now, but it really, online learning, it just doesn't really work out very well because it's just, it's not, that interaction is not the same. Exactly. I'm a person that leads one-on-one. So, I mean, so that, that's one thing I, I've learned. Even I now, and I'm sorry if I'm jumping the question a little no, bit. No, no, no. No, um, but um, even now, 
even when I'm because right now grad school I'm doing they switched to remote and then next year they're going to be doing hybrid so it's going to be a mixture of in person and then sometimes it's going to be remote that's going to be up until Thanksgiving and then it's going to be remote and then spring we have no idea what's going to happen next wow. but the thing is how the the program was designed was that everything was set to have a kind of like that personal conversation and it had to be like, you know, you know, it was set up in a way where it was going to be impersonal interaction. That's the way how the courses were all set up. Even when we did the group work, we were all were trying to build together, kind of like talking to each other. And then even afterwards, once the day was over, we still interacted with each other. We kind of, most of us, we all lived close to each other. So, you know, I was able to, even with the math assignment that I just did, um last um oh my goodness spring semester before they switched over me and the my colleague we were working together to figure out how because we had to do a math problem we had to teach like a math lesson okay and long story short that's the day when they switched it over to remote wow. when they switched it over to remote we had our chart papers we had everything all ready to go so when we were come back at the spring break we were going to be sitting, we were ready to, you know, it was going to be like an in-person lesson. They were all, go, all were going to sit and do the assignment. We were going to kind of go over it together. Once they switched it over to remote, we actually had an additional week. So we had to, had to kind of like re-strategize what we we're going to do. She still had the papers in her hand. She literally had to tape it onto her door in her room. I had, I actually had to go to Staples to buy some type of like this big, huge chart paper. Mm-hmm. That I had to sit there and I had to buy remote, I had to buy markers. And yep. I'm sitting there with a chair, like sitting right here, trying to go over it, trying to do the whole math problem. It was hard because the paper kept on falling down. Mm-hmm. And I tell people, just be patient. And you have to adjust it enough to the camera on my computer so they can see it. Yeah. That itself was almost nearly practically mm-hmm. impossible. But after, you know, finally getting adjustment and then finally after adjusting it, she went through it. She had a little hard time. She had to get on the step stool to explain. I actually had to do the whole math problem. I said, everyone, just bear with me. The paper keeps on falling, you know. So long story short, it was hard. Yeah. And now yeah. I can felt like what the teachers had to go through, mm. where they had to basically had to turn their kitchen or room into some type of a classroom. And you had to sit and, you know, and yeah. you had to, you know, yeah. and th- that, that's, that's hard. It is. is and it, it. keep everybody engaged at the same time. I, I think as a society, I know, I know right now, I think the, the two words that we're so tired of hearing is Zoom and pivot. <laughs> yes. I, I think yes. to me, it's almost like we're Zoomed out and we're tired of pivoting. We're tired of moving and changing and, you know, mm-hmm. constantly being in a state of disarray. And I think, you know, not only that, and I, and I love the fact that you talked about the educational change, but students also dealt with the fact of not having meals at the school. Mm -hmm. They dealt with not having the protection. Some of them went back to domestic violence in their homes. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about a total shift and a total pivot. Um, And teachers really stepping into the the position of not only teacher, but also supporter, social worker, you know, pastor in some ways to just be there for these children. Now, I'd love for you to talk about your work with the NAACP and even just your experience of, I know you had worked with them to actually go into the neighborhood within New York Mm -hmm. City and help deliver Mm -hmm. meals. What was that like to actually minister to the families, be hands-on and truly feel like not, not only were you teaching, but you were also giving and being that presence as well. 
Um, it was a good experience. Um, I think just to kind of go over what happened was that, you know, we had, and we only did this like once, um, but we went over and there was, they gave us like a list of people to give to. And we, these are all of our members because we basically, since we've been shut down, most of our members are elders. So they're not that computer savvy. So where it's not like a lot of, um, there was not a lot of people, there was not like a lot of branches were a lot younger and able to still hold meetings by remote. We just did, doesn't, we don't really have that capability. So in order, this was a way of interacting with our members was to deliver, because I know they had a hard time getting to a lot of these stores. At that time, two markets were basically almost barely running dry. So just to see these deliveries from Fresh Direct or see council people coming in to try to do all the deliveries was amazing. So anyway, so just the fact of actually just having like a small conversation, because you know, at that time, COVID was still high. We all had to wear our masks. We mm -hmm. had to keep the six feet apart. And the directions were, you sit there, you give it to them, not have much of a conversation, and then keep it, you know, keep it moving to your next destination. So we kind of delivered. We had like a small little conversation. And they say that they were very, very happy just to get the boxes because they kind of felt like the whole time, most of the members, they kind of felt like they were kind of trapped mm -hmm. because, you know, they, most of our members are also at high risk because mostly like are about 65 and above. Mm -hmm. So for COVID, if they were able to get COVID, they have a, a chances of being very, very ill yeah. is a lot higher than someone who's younger. So just the fact that so at that time they were told just to stay where they were. So just to see people just delivering, they were just they were just very, very happy to see us. So mm -hmm. I think just that moment, just the that interaction, even though the interaction wasn't long, it was short. But just to see hello and to see how they're doing, they're saying, I'm just blessed to be here, just happy just to see that I'm still alive and trying to do as much as I can at home, even though it's been very, very difficult because everyone's kind of telling me you have to stay home. And at yeah. that time, this is when, obviously, you know, the New York City metropolitan area had was on that mountain that was going up. So we were, even myself, I was a little bit nervous because, you know, I had my gloves on, I had my this on because you know I didn't know that you know and I had my sanitizer I would just sanitize my hands over and over again because me myself you're putting yourself out there you're, you're nervous you're like oh, I don't know if I'm going to end up getting sick or if I know I was going to be you know things like that so yeah but, no you're, yeah. you really take your life out in your hands when you step out and it's mm -hmm. it's hard and there's some people that can and there's some people that can't um I know for me it's almost like I I kind of have a couple different immune system disorders so it's like the way that I can kind of be interactive and kind of have my presence is much more online um which is different and I think it's so cool to talk about you know how can we be people of empathy of compassion and a lot mm -hmm. of the times it's in person a lot of the times it's you know creating awareness it's calling a friend there are so many different ways that we can truly be influential and, and connected within this world mm -hmm. So I now right now, and um, for any single person who lives under a rock right now, we're in the middle of this amazing movement of Black Lives Matter. <laughs> and it's incredible to see. It's incredible to support. Um, I would love for you to talk about, and I think especially from a faith perspective, and I know mm. those that are listening out there, um, a lot of us come from all different faiths. A lot of us come from no faiths at all. But I think mm. many of us have heard this idea or seen it on social media um, that racism is just a heart issue. It is mm. just connected to sin. Can you mm. explain to us why is that such a wrong statement? <laughs> wow, this is going to be a lengthy one. <laughs> um, yeah, well, first of all, when I hear that statement that 
racism is just a sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, racism has been around for about 400 years, ever since we've been put in slave ships from Africa all the way over to the United States of America. Slavery has been, I'm not going to say the word sin, because I think that's just a wrong term. It's more of a pandemic. I mean, we have COVID. Now, our pandemic that we've been, this American has been facing for 400 years now or more is sin. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm sorry, is um, racism, excuse me. Yeah. And racism, I mean, I think as a past, I mean, as a person of faith, I think it sads me. It's good to finally see most people finally speak up about it. Like, you know, see, I've seen some pastors, you know, once George Floyd happened, then all of a sudden you see a lot of these white pastors, sorry, not to say it like that, but yeah. a lot of these conservative pastors, yeah. they come up and for one moment mm-hmm. said, okay, black lives matter. You know, mm-hmm. they will say like, okay, they will kind of say like, all right, this is horrible. It's the worst thing in the world, you know? And then after all, that's it. And a lot that's of them it. were. And that's what I saw too from that's it. You know, a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of white male pastors that had been, you know, dormant for years that had never said mm-hmm. a word. This was their time. And I kind of question their... during that moment is, is it sincere or is it a photo op? That, that, well, see, it's, 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 I think it's a photo op because yeah. and it's not even really sincere because it's like, mm-hmm. if you are so serious, I mean, just don't talk about it for like one moment because I've seen some churches like, you know, and I'm not trying to put people out of the way. It's like, all right, they'll, I mean, they do things that are out of the norm and I can see it's out of the norm because they will talk about it for like one service, one service, they'll talk about it. They'll talk about racism. They'll talk about this and how we, they said that we are, we are a loving family. We accept Lord Creed, this and that, and the other, and that's it. And then the next thing is back to regular schedule of programming that they were before. And that's not good enough. I think that as, te- as pastors, especially, and I'm speaking to the white, is that, you know, just don't leave it just for one day, just mm-hmm. for one moment. You have to expand on that. I was like, if you, if you were that serious, will you actually denounce exactly what denounced what this cop did for eight minutes and 46 seconds where and all of them not just him there's plenty of i mean you have a mother who got who was lynched in um oh my goodness in georgia yeah i mean there's just so many of these cases mm-hmm. where it's not just chokeholds but us that were just brutally attacked not just only by police but just regular white folks in itself i mean so if you were that serious, then you need to denounce all of that. Are you going to stand up? Are you going to go up to a Black Lives Matter rally? Are you actually going to set up a service or set up some conversation? Hopefully you're not having a service at the time. We're in a pandemic. Are you going to have a conversation where you actually are talking with leaders mm. and that are trying to do things in the movement? Are you going to talk to leaders of... Um, NAACP? Are you going to talk to National National Letter? Are you going to talk to Black Lives Matter? Are you going to talk to the Poor People's Movement? Mm-hmm. Are you going to talk to William Barber, actually have a conversation where and try to figure out some ways of how we can denounce racism in America? I don't see it. They just rather just say about, oh, let's do this. Let's pray. Have a little moment of prayer. And then after that, that's it. Like Franklin mm-hmm. Graham does. I say, it's more than just prayer. You got to have a conversation. But the thing is, just to, um, a lot of times they also kind of think that Black Lives Movement is a terrorist group. 
mm. that they're sinners, that they're like the worst thing that they see in the world. And yet, you know, to call the KKK and white supremacy, I said, they were the worst people in the world. I don't understand. Why don't you call them? Why yeah. don't you call these people who they are? Mm. Oh, because they're like you. So because they don't believe in abortion aids, they're Christians, mm. Christians hate us Christians. Mm -hmm. So to say like Black Lives Matter is that, um, I'm sorry, I just lost my thought for a second. (laughs) Just (laughs) Just to think about the fact is that you don't want to, but you yet, you want to call Black Lives Matter a terrorist group Mm -hmm. or to say that we're evil, that they don't follow, they believe in abortion rights, they believe in taking down statues, Mm -hmm. they believe in, you know, rap or things that are just not holy things like that can go on down the line Mm. but and that's not the case i mean there are christian people out there that just want to be that that should kind of be like all right i support you guys are there any ways that i can help out or can denounce racism dude yeah i mean so Mm -hmm. that that's what i'm going with that so i mean now, I think that's so, a great uh, word. I think one, one of the biggest problems that, and I, and I like that you talked about this, is the idea of assumptions by white mm-hmm. pastors. And I think that's such a dangerous line to take because the problem is it still is white saviorism. It still is very much based into removing mm-hmm. yourself from the situation. Right. Not getting together, as you said, with leaders. And I think that's right. something that's so powerful about change. We truly want to see change happening within our organization or society meeting with leaders, taking the back seat and being in that place of teachability so that we can learn. Um, I think it's so necessary and so needed right now. I think people are so afraid of being wrong (laughs) that that, they're not, they're not willing to be wrong. And I think there needs to be that. There needs to be that openness of, wait a minute, I'm coming to you in a a space of I'm okay with being wrong because I want to be right. I want to get it correct. I want to actually progress forward to move. Yeah, I think that's the whole thing. It's just that people just want to be, I mean, they're just afraid to say that, okay, I'm wrong. I want to learn because they mm-hmm. always have to be right because I guess they're the holy, what's the word, holier than thou? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that they just think that, you know, because their their way is the right way and they're saying, well, I'm because I'm a pastor, I know what God is telling us is that we all have to that this is never going to change. This is never going to stop. Mm-hmm. Racism is always going to exist. And if we don't repent and ask God and accept God, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, then this is going to keep on happening. Mm-hmm. I think the lieutenant governor of Texas said that to, um, I think either Fox or CBN News. I don't know what okay. news source it was. But um, but those are there. That, that's what they're going on, is that mm-hmm. they're going to stick with that line, is that if you don't accept Jesus Christ as our personal mm-hmm. Savior, without actually looking at the deep root of racism. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times, their own racism, they, they're actually racist themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. If there were such people of Christ, but then support this whole conservative movement, which includes mm-hmm. Donald Trump, who is in the Christian, um, then I just think that they're just part of that white supremacy, that, mm-hmm. that you know, that thing that, 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 that talks, against black lives matter things that go against like what we're trying to do yeah so unfortunately i don't think that they are going to change i mean we can try as hard as we can but if they're not going to build that bridge and i've told a lot of people that i said if you ain't willing to build that bridge if you're not realized to finally say that racism is a big issue 
then it's just going to continue. It's just yeah. going to be a cycle that we're going to see until mm-hmm. we die. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, it, to me, it's like walking around with a big cut on my leg. It, it, I, I can ignore it. I can say, oh, no, I don't have it. But unless I get it treated, but in order right. to get it, I have to acknowledge it first. And mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest thing. It has to come from acknowledgement. And, and I think what you talked about with the whole Black Lives Matter movement, another thing that I've been seeing where it's, it's the antithesis of, of social justice. It's this idea that Christianity and social justice cannot be hand in hand, cannot be yeah, together. And, you know, when I, when I look at faith, and, and I know you and I have, have had conversations about this, we both see faith as active. We see it as a reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just really interesting to see how certain tenets of conservatism and traditionalism and fundamentalism have truly taken up more space than Christ. Right, um, right, right. And what does that look like? And I think, you know, looking, looking back, if it was only a quote unquote sin issue, mm. and as you were saying, then why is racism so predominant within the church? Why can we actually look back <laughs> in history and see so many of our pillars upholding something that was so heinous in the name yeah. of Christ? Um, and so it needs to start with us. Just having faith doesn't negate us from having work to do. Um, right. And I think it has to come from a personal perspective, but also structural. So I would love your opinion too, because a lot of the times that I've heard this is there's a lot of addressing of racism in very surface oriented practices, but a lot of people are very adverse to doing systemic change. So what are some things that you would say that need to be systemically changed in order to create an atmosphere and, and a society that, it, that has racial justice? Hmm. That is a that good is a question. question. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, if you could repeat it, I'm sorry, yeah, because no, something no. popped like, up. Yeah. Like certain, um, what are some things that need to change systemically? for racial justice to happen. So whether that be policy, whether that be leadership development. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. I think definitely, well, first of all, as I said before, that conversation, we have to bridge that gap. We have to, first, obviously, we have to acknowledge it. Obviously, another thing, and I've actually seen a lot now, a lot is policy changing. Mm-hmm. I think especially you've seen it um, where the House have passed a couple bills talking about chokeholds, um, banning chokeholds, or adding police reform, which is very, very important. I think that's one thing is changing the policies, changing the way of how we talk about policing. Because one thing that we say is getting rid of, getting rid of military, militarization out of the police. Another thing that, Carlene, that we've seen a lot is talking about the word defund the police. And that is a word that people get confused. They're like, oh, take the money. I said, no, 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 no. That's not what they mean. When they say defund the police, we're not saying take, we're not saying get rid of police because if you get rid of police, you're just going to have completely anarchy. It's going to look like a whole mess. What we're saying is instead of giving so much money, so much funds to police, because a lot of times, you know, a lot of cities, they allocate a lot of the money over in which we've actually been saying a lot in different areas. So when they say defund the police, they're saying that they took the money, allocated it to Mm -hmm. social programs, youth programs, things that's going to benefit the community. Mm -hmm. And then instead of doing militarization police, we're talking about neighboring policing, having more people like us in the force. And instead of that, know the community, that know who, you know, things like that. So Mm -hmm. that's important. It's policing. I think changing a policy is just 
getting rid of um, just getting rid of that militarization out of police. Another thing is very, very important too is, you know, you've seen a lot of times with Confederacy, we just love the Confederacy. As you can see in Mississippi, they decided to get rid of, change the flag. I think that a lot of times these things are things of the past that, you know, that kind of hurt, especially in the South, is that, that like having Andrew Jackson, things like that, it's just, it represents who we were. Uh, we're still holding on to racism. So I think just the fact of removing, now I know we can't remove all, I mean, there's some people, it, it, it becomes a big objection, but I think the fact of that and removing those confederacies, moving, removing signs, things like that, that remind us, that keep us in bondage of racism. First, I actually was allowed to see the confederate flag banned completely. I think that will be a great, will be great. I don't think yeah. it will ever happen, but <laughs> things like that. I think that, and I think just also, Another thing is I also talk about government and mm -hmm. one of the biggest things as now, now I'm putting my NAACP cap back on my head um, is that we also have to be involved in government. I mean, mm -hmm. as you can see, a lot of people of color, persons of color, younger people are now you seeing them now starting to run for offices. Yeah. I think the fact is that we have to change the landscape of what our Senate and our house looks like. And I think that even if you can't get the president out of office, the fact is that a lot of people are saying, especially in the Senate, is that we have to flip the Senate because mm -hmm. we already have the House. And I'm pretty sure that we're going to keep the House. The Senate, we all, I think it's like four seats or so. I say if we are able to flip those seats to what we favor, Democrat, then all the policies that get log jammed will finally be able to come into fruitation, gun violence, police brutality, raise a minimum wage because it goes beyond the disparity goes beyond just police reform. It also mm -hmm. talks about job markets, those mm -hmm. disparities, especially in education. So if you want all those things passed, if you want to see a change, then we have to make sure that we're putting our people in, mm -hmm. people that understand what who we are, what we you know what we're about. So those things have to happen. So yeah. you're now starting to see a lot of those younger people progress and they're considered progressive are starting now to run for office and mm -hmm. positions, especially even not just on a federal level, but on a state level and then also on a local level because federal levels ain't going to be able to do everything. It really, really starts at the city level. Mm -hmm. So those are the big changes that we are starting to see. So yeah. Yeah. And I love the fact that you talked about that it's it's more than just, you know, and I think clarifying the idea of defunding the police. What does that look like? Um, I know in Camden, New Jersey, I think Camden was the first one yeah. that actually mm -hmm. took that stance. And we've seen wonderful numbers. Um, yeah. Even in the town that I grew up in, it was, we actually created this neighborhood policing where the right. neighbors got involved. It was very community minded. And I mm -hmm. noticed that instead of having this hierarchy, instead of having this antagonism, people work together. And it really, some of the new ideas that are coming that have worked, I think would be wonderful if we could actually integrate that within police mm -hmm. reform. And what would that look like? Um, and I think it would create a greater partnership within communities and within, you know, different legalities. But here's the problem, though. I mean, it actually could work, but the problem is you have a lot of those police unions. Mm. Because those police unions, they're kind of very, very, especially in the city of New York. I mean, you have mm -hmm. one of the biggest police unions. 
in the world. So, I mean, anytime you hear the word defund, automatically they get offended by it because they don't believe it. They, all, they believe in that militarizing style because mm-hmm. for them, it keeps the crime down. And they said that the militarization style is keeping crime down. It's keeping homicides. And for them, it's working. I said, yeah, it works for you, but it doesn't work for the community. I said, yeah. we need to get into it. We actually did start it a little bit, but then it kind of stopped. Where, especially in the Bronx, especially Parchester area, they actually did start doing some type of neighborhood policing in the community. And it seemed to work for the moment. Then all of a sudden, it just kind of just fizzled out. Mm-hmm. So I think just to go back to what you're saying is neighborhood policing, when you have people like that in your neighborhood, they know who you are. Mm-hmm. And it actually will make the neighborhood a lot better because they know they know the community. We need people that know the community. We don't need an outsider coming in don't know anything then the only first thing that they see is like oh he's a criminal okay get Mm -hmm. get my gun out i'm gonna do this you know things like that so Mm -hmm. you gotta have community and camden has worked very very well as you can see you don't see anything coming out of camden Mm -hmm. because they've changed they got rid of the police department and they just restructured now i gotta say the word get rid of but that's the wrong word Mm -hmm. they just they demilitarize it and i think each city needs to do the same thing now it may not work the structure may not work for all cities i'm mm-hmm. pretty sure it not, may not work too well in new york city but at least some type of model that's better than the model that we have mm-hmm. because the model that we have obviously isn't going to work mm-hmm. now if you see that i'm talking about that in christian churches that will be amazing mm-hmm. but obviously they probably they're not going to talk about that so <laughs> that's true also too where it's almost like you know you can't you know one one thing that I've I've kind of been looking at is you can't really separate racism without looking at religion and you know we talk about systemic change happening in society and police and and you know whatnot but it needs to start in religious groups as well where it's almost like you know what what needs to actually be dismantled and reconstructed within faith communities um to make sure that we're operating in a place of diversity equality and you know inclusion um this has been great i love this conversation because i feel like it's it's you know when we talk about you know racial justice a lot of the times it's an ideology it's a far off idea that we have a hope for but we don't know where to start and thank you for really kind of figuring out all right here's like here's the game plan right here yeah if we just go through these steps it'll help us get to that next level um Mm. of equality of change so i really appreciate that you know just game plan Mm. that practicality so before we before we get off this conversation, I want to ask you a personal question that I ask every single person. Um, how are you personally finding hope through this time of coronavirus pandemic, um, but also too of this racial pandemic that's happening? Um, let me start with the COVID pandemic. I think that I've been. Um, I think it's just the word "we're family." Mm. When you're around your family all the time, just that encouragement and the fact of just being with just being with your family and I know that this has been hard because you know I really didn't get a chance to it kind of makes you appreciate family a lot more Mm. because now you know you don't have that opportunity to really go out as much you know because before COVID you know I would be out all the time just hanging out with friends you know and then you really get a chance to really interact but now the fact is that now you're at home you're not doing much you know, your, your, your lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. So I think the fact that even when COVID is over, I think that now just being much more family oriented and kind of like, more, and also kind of 
been focusing mostly on myself as well because mm-hmm. I've kind of been doing like these little excursion things where I kind of go out just kind of reflect and kind of have that moment to myself is like all right how am I going to as I move into the educational field what are some steps so how what are some ways that I'm able to help out young people in the future so I think just that alone just having that moment where you're by yourself and then going outside looking at nature doing things that you never thought of doing Mm -hmm. in so long so it's just giving that that kind of gives you that change Mm -hmm. so that's important as far as racism I hope that things do change I mean well now you're seeing not just us but now you're seeing a whole rainbow coalition of people mm-hmm. whites latinos brown asians even if you go the movement has now went across the globe you're seeing germany they actually had the largest demonstration for a black lives matter movement wow so i mean just to see that i think that now mm-hmm. they're seeing that racism in america not just america but in the globe but I think that it's now the time that we have to make the change. Mm. I think we've seen enough. We're tired of being tired. I think we've now just seeing a lot of these other cases starting to, um, I think it was Elijah, I forgot his last name, was um, that case now being reopened. So now you people starting to realize, okay, it's time that we make that change. How are we able to, do reform and we never had this type of police reform conversation we've, and we've had these things happen over and over but now you're starting to see conversations now you're seeing people gather around monument tearing them down trying their down even though that's one not doesn't solve doesn't solve the whole main picture but you're now starting to see this change this shift mm-hmm. so now if we can get the christian church conservative christian church to see it as well and get them on board then that will make things change. But one thing is very important is that people also have to vote mm-hmm. in November. I mean, it's good to talk about it, but if you're not going to that poll booth and making that change, then it's just, we're just reinventing the wheel. Then mm-hmm. it's just, we're just going to be continue to spin the cycle. And I'm not saying the next president, whoever who would be Biden or whatever, is going to make it quickly, as quickly as possible. I think people want that quick, sudden change. I said, but yeah, that's great. I said, but it starts with us. It it starts mm-hmm. at the poll. We mm-hmm. have to, we have to vote. Everybody votes because if you're tired now, first thing to do is what I teach my family taught me. I said, if you don't like someone, you can always vote that person out, mm-hmm. and that's what people have to learn. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. our bet. Yeah, and and it starts with us. It starts with our responsibility. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like, what are what are we willing to do? <laughs> So yeah. <laughs> it's very true. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us and Absolutely. great conversation. I feel like we delved into yes. so many different topics within a half an hour. I time know. Um, this was a good conversation. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Good, good. I'm glad. So, and thank you for all of our listeners out there. Um, truly take this time to lean in. I think if you can get anything from this conversation is don't, if you start with assumption, don't end there. Make sure that you are leaning into leaders of the movement. Contact people, contact friends, contact, um, you know, main leaders from the NAACP and truly take that step of leaning in, learning and listening and just being teachable. And I think as, as Anthony said, vote, make that change, truly have that time of introspection so that you yourself are responsible for your choice. 
So Anthony, thank you so much. And again, for all those watching, join us again for 30 Days of Hope next week. Oh, 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 oh,